All right, Rosemary, you got some important news for the world to hear. You're going to be at... Uh, at uh, Everything Electric Australia, which is in Sydney from February 9th to 11th. And I'm um, presenting four sessions on the Friday and then I'll be hanging out there on the, the Saturday as well to go around. They've got like every single electric car that is available or will be soon available in Australia, plus everything, you know, associated with electrification of the, the home and everything like that. So, yeah, it was a really big, cool event last year and it's set to be much bigger and much cooler this year. And listeners can get a 20% discount off tickets if they use my code, which is E-E-Rosie. So that's E for elephant, for those of you that have trouble understanding my uh, Australian vowels. But I guess it will be Australians who <laughs> want to use the code, so not that big a deal. So it's E-E-R-O-S-I-E. And how many people are going to attend this event, Rosemary, roughly? I'm pretty sure it was like ten or 15,000 last year, and I'm told that it's much bigger this year. Wow. So you better get your tickets now. If you want to attend that event, you better get on it right away and use Rosemary's code, E-E-Rosie, to get a 20% discount. That's fantastic. Uh, Denmark has a new king as queen. Margrethe II has abdicated after 52 years on the throne. King Frederick uh, X formally took over uh, recently in a ceremony at the palace, which Joel and I were at not long ago. Uh, Margrethe is the first Danish monarch to voluntarily give up the throne in nearly 900 years. Uh, and Joel and I were standing next to Frederick recently at the Copenhagen Wind Europe event uh, a couple of months ago. So we were close to royalty. We didn't even know it either. <laughs> these guys were kind of push, pushing us away a little bit. Like, what's going on with these guys? Look like a bunch of dudes from a Mission Impossible movie. And then we looked behind him and there it was now King Frederick X. At the time, he was the royal, what is it, Crown Prince? Was the Crown Prince Frederick? So Frederick is married to now Queen Mary, who is from Australia. And Rosemary, I think she's actually from sort of Tasmania slash Australia. And I was just wondering if there's a connection here. Is she like a second cousin to you? Or is 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 there some sort of uh, in, insight we could have into the monarchy in Denmark? Are, are we going to have a a new wind turbine facility in Australia? You've really gone for the, the the soft spot for any Tasmanian because that is the the joke that in Tasmania everyone is related to each other in uh, possibly <laughs> possibly uh, not not the like nicest way and people don't mean it as a compliment when they say that um, yeah so it it is it is highly possible <laughs> to be honest it's highly possible that we're you um, related somehow but not that I know of. And in fact, when I lived in Denmark, I never was introduced to Princess then Princess Mary, uh, which I thought was ridiculous. Obviously, you would expect as an Australian that when you get your um, you know, residence permit for Denmark, that it comes along with Princess Mary's phone number and you can you know, call her up and 
eat a <laughs> eat a Tim Tam or a flat white or something together, but um, that's not that's not how it worked. She kind of does look like you, Rosemary. Have you seen a recent picture of her? That's nice. She's very she's very beautiful. So that's a, that's a big compliment. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. But I just thought, well, there's, there's just not like, yeah. His first thought was, well, I know someone from Australia. There must be, and Australia's not that big of a place. Maybe there's a connection. Because what, what you need now is to use that angle to get a blade factory in Australia. I think there is a connection now. Yeah, well, in Tasmania, there's, um, there's a, a lot of renewable energy potential, but they're unable to expand as much as they would like to because they can't, they can't use it. They already have a basically 100% renewable electricity grid because they've got so much hydro, heaps of wind potential onshore and, and offshore. And so expanding industry is one way that they could, uh, yeah, take take use of that. They could use their energy there. Um, the other thing that they're looking at is expanding the interconnection um, with more HVDC subsea cables um, to the mainland. So, yeah, there's, there's some a, a project or two that will happen in the near future there. But, yeah. Uh, Queen Mary, if you're you're listening, then you know pick up pick up the phone, give me a call, and we'll we'll arrange a new wind turbine factory in Tasmania. Well, it looks like Australia is trying to find a port for some wind projects, right? So the Australia's first offshore wind farm, the Star of the South, is being developed, and they've been trying to put a port in a wetland area and at what they call the Port of Hastings, and the federal government vetoed it uh, because of some issues with some animals in the wetlands. Uh, now, Rosemary, I'm not sure how closely you're following this, but this is a big deal in Australia from all the press I'm reading about it. It was sort of a last minute uh, stop to the whole project. And the, the Star of the South group is saying, hey, this is not going to slow us down because of the timeline of the project. But port access in Australia should be easy. Isn't, there's a lot of ports in Australia already, but I guess none of them are ready to take big wind turbine components. Is, is that the issue? Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense that they wouldn't be ready for an industry that we don't have that needs such different, um, you know, types of facilities than anything else does. Of course, it's not ready yet. That's kind of like, duh. Um, <laughs> and the opposition at the moment is is having a trying to make offshore wind a thing. There was a big kerfuffle recently where the opposition got some traction with criticisms of the government. Oh, you know, there's been absolutely no consultation of this uh, in response to the government's announcement that they were opening consultation for um, offshore wind. And the, yeah, oh, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, they've, uh, they've announced the start of consultation. There wouldn't be consultation be before you started the consultation. That's kind of like a, another duh kind of thing. So I, I think it's mostly politics, the, the headlines associated with this, of, of course, saying that they're, you know, the first location that they identified as potentially developing into an appropriate port, it, it's not going to work because of environmental considerations related to wetlands. There will be other options, like you say. And I mean, it's not unheard of, right? In the US, it's the same, you um, lacking suitable ports and um, suitable infrastructure and everything. So I think you could look at this and say, well, the fact that they are looking at the the port infrastructure this early in the project, but well before they've actually got any projects greenlit or turbines ordered or you know anything of that kind, they're um, you know trying to develop the ports. To me, that says that they're learning lessons from what's um, what the challenges have been in the US and um, you know moving forward in a more sensible way when there's still plenty of time to um, you know find a new port location and adjust uh, the actual wind farm um, site layout. Perhaps if it if you know if they needed to move it a little bit. Um, also, it's it's great that you know the environmental um, approvals process is is going through and uh, the. 
um, project has changed in response to that. That's, you know, another thing with offshore wind that um, can lead to big protests later is environmental issues. So I think Star of the South have been super careful to um, make sure that they're not only doing like way more environmental assessments than what they might be required to, but also like really <laughs> publicizing what they're doing. Um, because, you know, public opinion is so important for these kinds of projects. Well, that's something we talked about, in, uh, I think, just in the last few weeks here is why are what in the U.S. side, we got ahead of all these things. And Phil, you actually you gave very, very topical arguments of like, hey, some of this stuff was lumped in with BOM, BOEM leases for oil and gas and some other earmark things in the government. That's why we didn't get all this analysis done ahead of time. We're doing some of it now after the leases have already been sold and whatnot. So there's there's reasons for it. However, if you're you know, a pioneer versus a settler type thing, right? You can look at all the lessons, lessons learned and the stumblings and the hurdles and, okay, let's let's remove those while we go forward to get the blockers out of the way. And it sounds like that's what Australia is doing right now. Well, is, is there a, a lesson in any of that? I mean, because of all the port problems we've been having in the United States and now Australia, what is the deal? How come we can't get through some of these port builds without having major multi-year delays is it just the wrong site choice? Is that the kicker? Is that every place that you want to build a port is just going to have some environmental impact and now you're just trying to find the least impactful one? Is that it? And why haven't we figured that out before we've done a bunch of work? I think it's just a factor of like uh, where we're at today as a society, right? 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we just built the port. We were like, screw it. Throw, throw some concrete in. Let's make it happen. We'll move forward. And now we're more litigious. We're, you know, a little bit more environmentally conscious, trying to make sure these things happen. And places like Australia right now that are actually looking at this ahead of time, I think what they're, uh, they're doing is good, right? They're, they're going to be the ones that, I, that you can see here on the forefront that are going to hopefully not have these hurdles and not have these cost delays because they're taking a proactive approach of dealing with the problems that they're now going to pop up. Whereas... You know, like the eastern seaboard of the United States, like that's pretty much sewed up of where you're going to be able to put things. So you're going to have to remodel, as a word, remodel a port to be able to use it where it might be, it may not be the same down there. Yeah, I, I grasp all that, but it does seem like we can't. Let, let me give you the example here in Australia. So Australia is just going to build a port kind of towards this, the south part of Australia, right? That's the star of the south project. But they're going to build offshore wind farms in a lot of different places. They're going, is this going to repeat itself over and over and over again? Because that's been the track record in the United States is to repeat this same process over and over and over again. There is no criteria when you start. It's just, it's all clean slate and then everybody gets to toss mud at it until it stops, which is what happened at the start of the South, quite honestly. That's what it felt like reading all the articles in the States is, hey, they did their homework and yet out of the blue, this red stamp comes and they have to stop. It doesn't make a lot of sense, especially from the federal government because you should be promoting this. Should have, should have said something a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. It doesn't sound like a, sh a showstopper to me. And I think that there's a lot of noise from the opposition because they have to find something to, to talk about, something to oppose. Um, and it doesn't actually mean that the the project is on the, on the rocks just because like I said you know they're upset that they didn't consult before consultation opened and now they're you know upset that they didn't solve this problem before they knew that this was a problem even though it's been identified you know like way earlier in the process than it um you know these sorts of issues have been identified elsewhere it's just you know like I mean if you're an opposition 
politician, then of course you need to find um, things to criticize and things to say that you'd do differently. So uh, it's definitely going to happen regardless of, you know, even if the project was executed flawlessly, there would still be headlines exactly like this every, every few weeks, because that's what they need to do to um, stay in the, in the news. So I don't really think that you can tell anything about the state of the project from um, listening to headlines related to political, you know, tussles. One of the options for the port was in Tasmania, but that's not next door. How would how would you do that, Rosemary? I mean, you're crossing the Bass Strait every time that you um, that you want to drop drop something off. But I mean, um, it's not unheard of for weird logistics related to offshore wind. Uh, isn't it the case that in the U.S., because of this, you know, um, Jones Act and the problem that you don't have any uh, U.S. flagged vehicles that are, you know, uh, ships, sorry, that are capable of installing these wind farms, haven't they got like some sort of shuttle system going where they have foreign flagged installation vessels, but they never actually go into port. They, you know, shuttle something out and back. I mean, it's in, in, incredibly inefficient, but it's the quickest, cheapest way to solve the problem given the political situation that you're in. Um, so, you know, it might be the case that this that is the, you know, the best environmental outcome. I, and I haven't dug deep into the environmental issues. They're not that that far apart. It's, uh, you know, it's a, a few hours in a, um, a ferry. Um, so, you know, like a faster ship could, could do it in, in less than that. Don't worry because the Chinese are going to be shuttling components from, from their ports to, to serve the Australian market. So that's what my first thought was. Yeah, that'll happen. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, this, this ties into what Australian billionaire Andrew Forrest is up to. So he's pledged 14 gigawatts of wind, solar, and battery capacity over the next decade down in Australia. And Forrest owns Squadron Energy, if you've been familiar with the comings and goings down in Australia. Uh, there's a $671 million Ungala wind farm being uh, constructed at the moment. It's in New South Wales. It's 69 GE6 megawatt turbines. GE is also uh, lined up to supply Squadron's next two projects, Spicer's Creek and Jeremiah Wind. Uh, it's a big pipeline there between GE and Andrew Force Squadron Company. And they're looking to supply like a third of Australia's renewable target. That's a lot, Rosemary. I, I, I don't know where Andrew Force got his money. Was it from... Was it from coal or yeah? Is it a mining operation? Yeah, but not coal. It's iron, iron ore um, mostly. It's uh, Fortescue, yeah, Fortescue metals. Um, and he has been a very successful businessman. And yeah, Fortescue is obviously an incredibly successful company. Um, however, I would say his reputation is not. It's not like a Warren Buffett type where everyone marvels at how every single call he makes is the right one, right? Um, Andrew Forrest is more of a, a scattergun approach and, it, you know, he wins it, it very incredibly successful on some of his calls and some other ones have turned out to be terrible ideas that just, you know, went faded away. Um, so I would say with this, what is it, 14 gigawatts, if you just look at like yesterday's peak load for the whole of the Australian East Coast grid was 31 megawatts, right? So, you know, we're talking a really huge, huge chunk of, um, yeah, uh, of Australian electricity if it was going to actually supply Australian electricity um, and not go into exports of hydrogen or new industry or whatever. But 
that that all isn't committed. The way that these announcements work, and not just for Andrew Forrest's ventures, but for any any big hydrogen project you look at or anything, they give a really huge announced figure and then they will say, you know, we've ordered or construction has started or whatever. And then when you dig deeper and usually you actually have to talk to someone involved in the project to find this out, it's actually made, split into slices um, that, you know, so that 14 gigawatts probably has, uh, you know, half a gigawatt or one gigawatt of, um, you know, an actual wind farm or whatever that has, you know, is in development, active development. And then the rest of it is planned, you know, planned stuff. Maybe they've started seeing whether they can get the land for it, or maybe they have on paper, you know, made a spreadsheet model, um, that will say how it's going to work. And so you kind of, you put those two things together, it makes it sound like a 14 gigawatt wind farm is <laughs> under development, but actually the reality of it is that, you know, um, every single market outcome would have to go exactly the way that they want it to. And they're like most wildly optimistic scenario for that all to come, come true. So, you know, if the plan is to, for example, export a whole lot of hydrogen, um, and I did talk to a developer of a, a similar giga giga project somewhere else about um, yeah it wasn't that huge but a quite quite a huge multiple gigawatt wind farm that was going to be combined with a multiple gigawatt solar farm and export hydrogen and you know that would depend on how hydrogen exports around the world go because obviously it's not enough for Australia to make the decision we're going to export all this hydrogen um, someone would actually have to want to buy that. And then you would have to find a way to not only make it cheaply, but to transport it cheaply. And that's the, the big thing in, you know, transporting hydrogen in, in liquid form. We have tried it in Australia. It's, it's incredibly inefficient and expensive. And, you know, then there's other ways to transport hydrogen, like by converting it to ammonia and either then using it as ammonia at the end destination or even some people suggesting converting the ammonia back to hydrogen. Um, it's all very inefficient and estimates that I've seen is that, you know, these headline really cheap hydrogen figures like a um, dollar per kilo of hydrogen, that's at the factory gate and transport could add, you know, five times that onto it depending on where you're going to and from and by what method. So, you know, as people realize the reality of of hydrogen imports they're likely to you know scale down the amount that they are going to get and so then obviously the supply has to scale down too so i uh, yeah i wouldn't pay so much attention to the 14 gigawatts it's um you know probably largely designed to get a lot of attention and you'll get the totally the wrong impression about the energy transition if you start taking all of these announced values at face value. There's something interesting here too, Rosemary, because this is um, uh, talking about financially backing the energy transition, right? So <clears throat> this is, comes on the heels of uh, Larry Fink, uh, CEO of BlackRock, right? They just announced that big GIP deal, growth, uh, Global Infrastructure Partners. And what he's saying in some, all the press conferences about is the future in private markets will be infrastructure. Okay, so we've seen this in other places. We've seen the safe place to put money, all these pensioner accounts all over the world are putting money into Brookfield, into all these other places that are doing these energy infrastructure projects. You see Bill Gates owns wind farm companies now. We see Berkshire Hathaway Energy 
wind farm companies. We see Amazon buying them and Walmart putting money. And so all these big companies are getting behind the energy transition. Some of that capital is coming from there, right? But I think it's more often than not because that's a safe bet for growth, right? Like this Andrew Forrest move is just like BlackRock doing the GIP deal um, and, you know, sticking 12 and a half billion in cash <laughs> and, and the biggest money controlling entity in the world, BlackRock, probably besides, I don't know, some other government or something, but I think they have like 10 trillion in assets. Phil, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, they're saying that that's the future. The future is in infrastructure. So that's what they're putting their money. So you can see some of these other uh, people with a lot of cash in the pocket are doing the same thing, which is spurring on the energy transition. Yeah, but does it grow enough in Australia to then put facilities that are going to build some of this on the continent? I don't think so, to be honest with you. I don't think so because there are they're already really there, right? It's that awesome the awesome job that they have done in the rooftop solar and the microgrid type things has made it to the point where like they don't it's not cost advantage to go and like man, we really got to put 10,000 more turbines up in Australia. You don't. You just don't need to right now. Yeah, but it's such a huge wind resource and solar resource for the world. It does seem like you would tap into that. Well, if like the Bay of what is it? The the Indian Ocean? If the Indian Ocean wasn't so deep and you could actually run HDVDC to India, there you go. But it, that's a that's one of the deepest chunks of water in the world. Yeah, right Right now, the one that they're planning is is to Indonesia, and it hasn't even gotten kind of fully approved. So they're, they're still talking about it. So there's been a new integrated service plan released by the Australian um, electricity market operator, and... They assume that to get to, we're on track to get to 82% renewable electricity by 2030. And that means that there will be 39 gigawatts of new wind and solar built by 2030. So it's about six gigawatts per year between those two. And I think it is actually quite optimistic. I mean, there's there's actually a fairly robust market and our own... Our own projections already indicate that they're going to be doing at least three gigawatts a year in, in wind. Uh, and they'll probably do more of that in, in solar as well. So I, I don't see any problem for them to achieve that AEMO projection. But that's only a couple. Of, so, so regarding Alan's comment to why isn't, is that enough to build a factory in country? I don't think so, because it's only a couple hundred turbines a year each. That's what a turbine factory will produce, though, generally, is about that number, roughly. You need about 300 units a year for at least like five or 10 years to justify the capex cost on a factory. So they don't, they're too, it's too fine of a margin. Like even though they might be getting those numbers, it's too fine of a margin for them to say yes. Yeah, like a policy change could flip it upside down. Yeah, like one little thing, one little hiccup happens and that their capex investment goes down the drain. How do you become energy independent if you're dependent on another country for everything that you do? Well, you're dependent on them to buy the turbines. You're going to buy a Vestas 20-year full-service agreement with that, too? The, the, the logic of this goes away when that happens. Oh, I hope. I hope that we could figure out how to, how to run a... If we went to war with Denmark, I hope we could figure out how to run the, the turbines that are on our own, our own land. <laughs> you're part of the monarchy. You can't be at war. You better get a discount on your 20-year FSA now. That's what I'm saying. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Dang straight, Rosemary. You got to start acting like you're part of the crown. You're, you're, you're tied to two countries with royalty, right? UK and now Denmark. There you go. You can't go wrong. Maybe Australia could, because, you know, we have a, 
an ongoing debate about whether we should, uh, you know, leave the British monarchy and become a republic, but maybe there's a third option that we move from the British monarchy to the Danish one now that we have, at, you know, at, at least we've got an Australian n- n- now, you know, in the, in the bloodline of the Danish monarchy. So it makes more sense to me. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. Well, since we're on the topic of hydrogen, GE Vernova has secured a major order from Australia's CS Energy for 12 aeroderivative gas turbines. They will power a new 400-megawatt peaking plant in Queensland. The Brigalow facility will be Australia's first hydrogen-ready power station. Now, what GE is saying is that these uh, new peaking plants can operate on 35% green hydrogen, and that as the decade goes on, they're going to have um, ability to to use more hydrogen in those peaking plants. So it's a new technology that GE Vernova has been looking at, and it looks like green hydrogen is going to become a reality in Australia, Rosemary, whether you like it or not, uh, because GE selling turbines down there because they can have the hydrogen capability. I, I agree with you on the green hydrogen thing. It's super expensive to move around. It doesn't make any sense to move it around, but maybe it makes sense in a peaking plant. Is that a possibility? For the very last little bit of decarbonization, but the fact is like a peaking plant like this, I haven't looked at the figures for this particular one, but there's another one um, at Curry Curry um, in uh, New South Wales, and that is planned to have a capacity factor of 2%. So it's like the you use gas for that. It's not really a big driver of emissions in Australia, considering that, yeah, we'll be at 82% renewable electricity by 2030 you don't need to have hydrogen um, instead of gas at that point. It's like when you're up to 98, 99%, then that's when you would bother to change over from gas to hydrogen, in in my opinion. I I think that these hydrogen, I mean, hydrogen-ready turbines, fine, whatever. It's probably barely costs any different to just a new gas turbine. And, um, you know, the gas turbines really can support very high levels of variable renewables and we will we will need those while we um you know in this stage of the transition when we're rapidly getting more variable renewables and less rapidly getting more um energy storage and long duration energy storage so i've got no no problem with that um hydrogen ready aspect of it means that it's a bit like um it's a little bit of armor against um criticisms from green groups that we shouldn't be having any more um fossil fuel power plants built so you know if this was my project i would also do that just because i wouldn't want to spend all my time fighting off um you know well-meaning environmentalists who maybe don't understand the reality of uh, running a you know gigawatt scale electricity grid um and the other thing that uh, green hydrogen um turbine a hydrogen ready turbine provides is a domestic um, use for hydrogen so if you're a country that thinks you're going to export a whole lot of hydrogen and you want to make sure that you're ready for that when it's needed but no one actually needs it now and we haven't figured out how to transport it anyway 
then, you know, politicians are trying desperately to find ways that we can uh, ramp up the industry with domestic load. So that's why you see this kind of project. That's why every single project that's trying to blend hydrogen into gas pipelines um, to use for home heating or whatever, it's totally stupid for every reason except for that it's politically very nice to be able to say, well, you know, we're ramping up, we're making this much green hydrogen and, you know, when this magical hydrogen economy, export economy around the world, when that eventuates to the extent that everybody is claiming that it will, we'll be ready because we've been burning our um, hydrogen in gas pipelines and we can stop that. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that that's more what it's about Um like I said, I, w- I would do it too if I was running this project. So I'm not. I'm not criticizing, but um, it's it's not it, it's not a emissions action. It's not. It, yeah, it's not anything to do with reducing Australia's emissions. Rosemary, maybe this is me being stupid, but if this is a peaker plant, the aeroderivative gas turbines that are being used for it, can't isn't this a a version of that? The same gas turbines that we would be using in an, a regular power plant as well. I think they're very similar. Yeah, why can't a new regular power plant be this hydrogen ready over the next future thing? Like, why can't every power plant that's coming online be like this? I'm guessing this is not a huge difference in cost to be hydrogen ready. It it would be a big cost to go through and make existing gas power plants hydrogen ready. That that would be different. And it is going to, it's, um you know, plants that are trying to be able to blend different ratios i know that that's quite hard like it's easy to get 10 or 20 percent hydrogen blend you don't have to do too much but it's hard to blend beyond that it's kind of more like you flick a switch then and go from 20 or this one's saying 35 percent. so i'm guessing it's not your stock standard turbine but um gas turbine but yeah it 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 will have to be modified probably in some way and it might not go 35 40 45 50 it might go 35, 40, 50, 100, kind of. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the details, but um, that's my understanding of how it works. So 15 years ago, I was working at GE doing projects, including the 100% hydrogen combustor. Uh, this And that was 15 years ago. And we're only at 35. So, you know, the bottom line is this is, it's fantastically expensive, actually, to to implement. Um a new build would certainly be cheaper than a retrofit because the the 7H and 9H GE uh, conventional turbines don't really have the... They're not high temperature enough to be able to handle the, the combustor output for, um, for a hydrogen combustor. So they, the, the turbine portion of the gas turbine doesn't... It, it, you'll melt it if you put too much hydrogen in it. These ones that they're talking about going up to, I don't think they're actually going to be at 35% for the reasons Rosemary was suggesting, because you you start, again, you getting into a situation where blending too much is, is going to um, cause both technical and commercial problems. Um, but at the end of the day, again, if you had like a brand new plant to build or you were going to repower... A, a gas turbine site, you might do it with hydrogen if you had a consistent enough hydrogen supply. But again, that's predicated on having infrastructure that's available where you've got a pipeline that's going to be able to feed this thing. You can't just switch over from using a, a natural gas pipeline to a hydrogen pipeline, uh, you know, cold turkey, so to speak. It's So there's... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's actually more expensive than it sounds, and and a lot of these hydrogen things are are it, they are just kind of green sounding. They're they're not as cost efficient as they need to be. Not to say they don't work or couldn't work in the future, but they're not as cost efficient as they need to be in order to work at scale today. Yeah, and considering that it's not really solving a, a hard problem at this point, it, it, you know, the emissions reduction compared to how hard it is, you're so much. There's so many better places that you could put that that effort, like you know, developing proper port infrastructure for an offshore wind industry or something. That's you know a lot more bang for your buck to be doing that sort of thing at this stage of the energy transition. A section of wind turbine blade broke off at the Humber Gateway offshore wind farm in the UK in last December. Uh, the roughly 20-meter-long blade piece fell into the sea, and they reported as being likely adrift or underwater. I could, there's only really two options. It's not an orbit. It's, it's got to be on the water or underneath of it. It might be in orbit. So they have 73 Vestas V112 3-megawatt turbines there, and it, that went from shuttle operation in 2015. Uh, there was not a lot of information about this. Obviously, they had to tell mariners in the area to watch out for this blade that may be floating around. Uh, the, the RWE, which is responsible for the site, has uh, is going to replace it, and is, once the boats are there to do it, they're going to uh, also look at some repairs, obviously, or be looking at doing an inspection. So this is, you don't see a lot of offshore blade issues at the moment. This is a pretty significant one, and, and the fact that it dropped something into the water. Uh, my assumption is once you drop something into the water, you actually have to find it. Is, isn't that a, one of the rules, Joel, is that if you drop it, you have to bring it back up? Yeah, any kind of, especially uh, oil and gas, offshore infrastructure, offshore wind, anything. If you drop a tool, they want you to go get it, right? There's, there's always, um, and not only an environmental issue, but it could be aids to navigation. That thing could be resting on an export cable down there. You don't know, right? So you've got to go and find the thing because it could cause problems. Of course, that would be a, you know, it would, stuff gets lost all the time. I mean, there's been pictures and images of $5 million remotely operated vehicles that are size of trucks washing up on the beach in Brazil that were lost in Africa. Like I've seen these, this happens. Um, but the, I, I want to talk about one interesting thing here. Just looking at the numbers. So this is a V112, three megawatt machine. So if you follow any kind of metrics of wind turbines, V112 usually means 112 meter rotor. It's a Vesta's machine. That's going to be a 55, 54 meter blade. And for a 54, 55 meter blade to be on a three megawatt machine, that means that those blades have been under some structural loads their whole life. That means that those things have been spinning hard and, and long for a long time. Those turbines were using the original v112 blade design which had the uh, carbon prepreg it's before they made this changeover to the pultruded rods there'll be an rca done on it they'll figure out why it broke but this is showing you okay this has been you're just turning eight and a half nine years old of production on this wind farm uh if i was the rwe on this one i would definitely be taking on some pretty intense internal inspections of all of these blades just to make sure that there's nothing starting to loosen up or crack, or maybe even some specific NDT on these blades, just because if one of them let loose like that and it doesn't look at this time, we haven't heard anything like there's a lightning strike or anything like that. This could just be fatigue. And if you've got one of them that let loose and there's 73 more of them out there, you've got now 
208 more or 218 more blades or 217 more blades out there hanging. This is one of those times where you pray it's lightning. Well, maybe, yeah, but because you also have a bunch of these in Denmark, too. And and uh, I want to also say Germany is using some V112s in some of their earlier projects. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Well, sticking to the offshore theme, operations at Equinor's 30 megawatt high wind Scotland floating offshore wind farm have been interrupted for up to four months uh, for heavy maintenance on the turbines. Uh, operational data has shown the need for the work on the Siemens Gamesa turbines that have been operating for about seven years off of Aberdeen. They are uh, SWT 6.0154 machines. Uh, the turbines will be towed to Wergland Port in Norway this summer, where maintenance will be done by the Wergland Group. Uh, this is the first heavy maintenance operation for a floating wind farm. Uh, towing the turbines to shore is the simplest way. This is the, one of the beauties of having a floating wind farm is you can tow the turbines in and out. What we don't know right now is what they're going to repair. And they think it's going to take a couple of months for the repairs to occur. That screams out to me, bearings, gearbox, drivetrain, probably not blades, right? Or It's rotating equipment. Gearbox would be the easy one, but it's got to be something drivetrain related, right? To do three or four months, it means bearings i'm hearing it's the the main bearings and it's probably due to a lot of the off-axis loading that you're getting because the the tower is kind of flopping around on the floating platform in ways that i mean they obviously design it with natural frequencies and everything in mind but it's it's you know still getting a lot of off-axis loads on um you know on the the turbine that probably weren't anticipated at the, the levels they've probably actually been seeing. Well, we've been talking about this uh, with floating wind here on the show for a while. It's always, it's been a concern. Any, any engineer floating, you know, naval architect, structural engineer is going to see that there's, if you're going to use basically the same uh, bearings or anything that's been used onshore or in a fixed bottom offshore, that's not going to take the same loads. It's because you're now you're you're introducing a few other degrees of freedom on these things. And when you're in the freaking North Sea, we've all seen the videos of what the North Sea does in the wintertime. It's pitching and rolling. That thing is angry and ugly and nasty, right? So those things have been bouncing around there for six, seven years. Um, you know, the, I, I read an article by a, a friend of mine at the Neord uh, Insurance, but it's a Norwegian Hull Club thing. And they were talking about making sure that you have tow to port for all of these uh, issues built into your business model. And, you know, normally six years, you're not changing out bearings and things like that. But this is the first long-term deployment of an offshore floating wind farm in the world. You know, and as and as we do more of these offshore floaters, and if there's adjustments and things better, we got to understand, we've been talking a lot about the fleet for installations. Yes, that's there. However, now if you're going to start being dragging turbines all over the place, now you're talking about anchor handling tugs and the availability of those. There's a lot of moving parts here. So this is this is where I want to understand this uh, tension lake platform bit, right? So in PES Wind Magazine, on the latest issue, there's an article by Eco TLP, 
And when I saw the high wind issue, I thought, okay, so maybe the tension leg platform can reduce some of the movement, as which is what it sounds like. And the article is really good, but you know, I, I'm an electrical engineer. I'm not a mechanical engineer. I'm not an offshore engineer. But it does seem like these tension leg platforms are a way to reduce some of the the movement, so you don't wear out the the rotating pieces of these turbines, right? Isn't that the logic? Yeah, but TLPs by by design are deep water units, and the reason is is okay for every every meter of tension leg, you can expect X amount of freedom of movement, right? So if you're trying to install install one of those in 150 meters of water, it's too rigid. It will bam, bam, like it won't work, right? Or you'd have to have the TL the t- the actual fiber tensioners would have to be so loose that it would bounce around anyways. So a TLP is better suited for three, 5,000 meter water depths, even into 2,000 meter water depths. Uh, where, whereas I think high wind is not, not nearly that deep. I think high wind is only like 120, 150 meters of water. So is there a problem in being in that depth of water that there's no way to try to control the amount of bobbin and weaving that the turbines are going to do? Yeah, you're in, the, you're in that middle thing where you can't quite get a you know, it's too expensive to put in a jacket because you can build a jacket that's freaking 500 meters tall easily. It, it's done all the time, but they're so expensive. Then it's like, why are we doing this? It makes no sense. So after you get to a certain depth, the jacket doesn't make sense. But you can't put a monopile out there in 150 meters of water because it's going to be a 250 meter long monopile. Like it, you're not going to do that. So is there a solution for this, or is it just building the turbines more robust to handle the loads, uh, the offset loads that are going to happen? There's a couple of solutions, right? There's different technologies you can do for for floating concrete um, spars and and different things on the surface. It's just which design do you go with, right? There's the the X1 wind platform, and there's the this platform, and there's the that platform, and the T Omega or whatever. There's all kinds of different ideas. If you're wearing out the bearings in these turbines, aren't you then putting a lot of stress in the blades? It seems like that would be, it's just like you're wearing out a bearing in an engine. You wear out the bearing in an engine, and then all, this, all the attached pieces start to wear because things are not working like they should. Is, is that the, the, the real concern? Is like you can replace bearings, not fun, but you could do it. You start damaging blades or something bigger, towers even, you're really in trouble. If this weren't a floating platform, this would be a monstrously expensive thing to have to fix. Remember what happened with the Vestas V93 megawatt in Denmark? They had to change out the main bearing because it was basically an onshore turbine taken and put in an offshore environment, never designed for an offshore environment, as Joel mentioned earlier. And they literally had to change out the main bearings after like two years or something, three years. Um, and they had to do it on hundreds of turbines. It cost Vestas millions of dollars. That leads into another interesting story I found, which is from Rutgers University. So Rutgers University researchers want to develop floating offshore wind turbines like high wind. Uh, and they're talking about building a facility, a net zero wind energy test center uh, on the shore, the Jersey Shore, guys. and. <laughs> when I first read this, and there's there's a big article about it. There's some news stories. Uh, there's some of the state senator, at least one state senator, there talking about this. They are going to be way out of the league. Uh, any college university in the United States is trying to develop offshore wind. the The industry's been doing this for ten ten plus years at this point. There, it's really complicated. What is Rutgers going to bring to the table here? 
that uh, an Equinor doesn't already know? First of all, they're they're in about 35 meter water depth out there in New Jersey, so I don't think they're going to bring much. Um, you know, Habib Dagger at the University of Maine has already been working on this for, for 10 years, and they had to go get, you know, commercial partnerships involved. The question I have is, why is Rutgers the one getting the money for this? I mean, I don't have anything against them. It's just, if you're going to do something floating in the U.S., why is it not on the West Coast? Why is it not UCLA, the, you know, even here in my hometown, the University of California, Santa Barbara, or something up in Oregon or Washington? UC Davis. Alaska. You know, where we're actually going to have deep water, yeah, deep water deployments like why is rutgers getting something where again the whatever they're going to test it's going to be at scale and it's going to be in like 35 to 40 meter water depth at the most because there's that whole outer continental shelf well the thing is in the united states they like to run uh, new innovative ideas through some sort of university or college to, to vet them out which i think is a terrible idea in offshore wind and Phil, you're probably right. And doing something on the West Coast makes a lot more sense because that's where floating when it's going to occur. But even then, they're still way behind industry. Like Rosemary's, Rosemary's been working in industry for a long time, right? Like 30, 40 years. She's not that old. Oh, she, sorry, Rosemary. <laughs> she, she's still there. But Rosemary, come on. Is, is there, you went to UC Davis. You, you've been on the West Coast. You've been, you're a West Coaster. Is there, is there anything that UC Davis could add on an offshore wind facility in the next 10 years that would make any substantial difference in the offshore wind industry? Nice people, smart people, just not capable of doing that. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Every, some universities make a big, um, a big effort at staying in, you know, linked into industry. And so I wouldn't write off every single, um, you know, uh, academic project to not be able to contribute to the real world um but yeah i probably share your <laughs> share your sentiment i mean i i did phd so obviously i was in the academic scene uh while i was doing that and you know i i thought i did a good phd project wrote a good thesis published a few good papers out of it i bet that no one ever took that um you know that that work and turned it into something in industry and then um, after I finished that, I went and got a, a job at a wind turbine manufacturer and, you know, very quickly things that were ideas in my head became products that were in, you know, gigawatts worth of wind turbines. So for me, it's very clear that I am much more able to have an impact working in industry than in academia. Um, I, I, academia is, is needed as well, but it's more, you know, like it's a lot earlier on and you have to really, really carefully designed programs that are going to combine um, academia with industry for it to do a good job. I, I do work on some with the the minerals processing stuff that I do um, that involves a lot of university collaboration that's um, really good, but, you know, it's a really, really science-focused company, um, whereas a wind turbine is not at the science stage. It's at the, you know, um, project development and operations and manufacturing. It's, you know, all that sort of stuff that um, is mostly practical with only smaller inputs needed from academia, in my opinion. I know that we don't play as well as we should <coughs> with other countries and other academic research, but do you think some of it has to do with the idea that, hey, the rest of the floating wind research that's going on in the world is Scotland, France, 
some in the Canary Islands a little bit. Norway, Japan. Okay, so that 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 shoots my argument in the foot. But my thought was, at least you're in the same kind of daily time zones where if you're on the east coast of the U.S., you can talk to Europe. But I don't think they they don't really care. That's Australia's excuse for not being not having their finger on the pulse for anything. Dude, it really really sucks trying to collaborate internationally when you live in Australia. I tell you. But yeah, it's it's just I I think it's it goes back to just a resource thing, like we talked about. So again, you know, nothing disparaging against Rutgers. They're actually doing fantastic work with workforce development, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the things that they've actually been working on. Uh, but not necessarily, yeah, but to, to the point I think we're all trying to make here, there's no point to what they would be doing with setting up some kind of offshore wind research capability because we've already got more than enough designs of, I mean, we've been talking about floating offshore wind for 20 years in the industry. There are literally 130 different patent families, which comprises, I don't know, it could be upwards of like a thousand different patents on floating offshore wind designs. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've got, we've got it covered. Like we don't need academia's involvement unless it's going to be to research a specific aspect of like, you know, if you want to put in like a wave tank or something, and research like fatigue loading on something, you know, again, whether or not it's going to be relevant at scale. Yeah, I mean, but, but, you know, that's the sort of thing that the industry would benefit from, not let's have a university design of floating offshore wind platform. We, we don't need that. Thanks. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe. In the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.